I love it. I love it. Amen is right. Yes. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the sounds of the children exiting the sanctuary and about to hear from your word down in Aunt Pat's or uh, read a Bible story with Aunt Sue in the, in the toddler room. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the stories, all the accounts that are recorded for us. They're stories of real people dealing with real life situations and their faith being tested grown, stretched, seeing who you are, having more of you revealed through these experiences. And Lord, may the same happen as we look at your word today. May this be a story today of faith that's grown and changed and stretched. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years back, Business Insider published an article about lesser-known facts about famous historical people. We know really famous historical figures by what they accomplished in their adult life. But it's surprising where they came from in their early years, and it doesn't really seem connected to how we see them today. For instance, we know Alexander the Great from all of his military conquests, and especially in connection with the world that Jesus lived in, uh, uh, the Greek language and culture and full influence among most across most of the ancient Mediterranean world because of him, because of Alexander the Great. But did you know that his school teacher, think about your school teacher when you were young, or multiple school teachers you had when you were young, but did you know that Alexander the Great's school teacher was none other than the Greek philosopher Aristotle? Isn't that cool? You have to wonder how much influence Aristotle's teaching and life advice had on a young Alexander to make him the man that he became. And I wonder how much influence Aristotle had on Alexander's drive to force the Greek culture and language on every people group he conquered, including the Holy Land. Alexander's mom, on the other hand, was quite a piece of work. She spread the rumor that Zeus had impregnated her and that Alexander was Zeus's son and had Alexander's stepmom and stepsister burned alive for no other reason than she thought them threats to Alexander's power. You think of dysfunctional moms. Alexander had one. Marco Polo didn't meet his father until he was 15 years old as his father was a traveling merchant and didn't return until 15 years later. I wonder if he even knew he had a son. His father then took a then 17-year-old Marco Polo a couple years later with him on his next voyage, which lasted 24 years before Marco Polo returned to Venice. Polo returned to find his hometown at war with Genoa. He joined the fight and was imprisoned because of it. In prison, his cellmate was a romance writer and wrote down what Polo dictated to him about all his travels. It's only because of this turn of events that Polo is even famous today for his writings of his travels. And it's only because he had this cellmate that we even had this book of Marco Polo's travels. And Polo's book is the major reason why another famous explorer, Christopher Columbus, wanted so badly to become an explorer and set out to find a passage to India. He had a copy of Marco Polo's book with him everywhere he went. 
Julius Caesar is known today as the first Roman emperor, but his early life certainly didn't point to that feat. Caesar was 32 years old before he had any stroke of making a name for himself. While on a trip to Spain, Caesar saw a statue of the previously mentioned Alexander the Great and got angry at himself for not accomplishing anywhere near as much as Alexander the Great had. He originally had started as a priest in the Roman religion, but then turned towards the military after losing that title. He rose steadily through the ranks, and it was through that military, then becoming political influence, that Caesar overthrew the Roman Senate and was declared emperor. This not as well-known information kind of adds another dimension to these people, who they were and why they did what they did. In our passage this morning, Jesus' disciples think they have a pretty good idea of who Jesus was and how things were going to go. But then out of nowhere, Jesus suddenly does something completely unexpected and completely out of character and shows another dimension to who he is. And up until that point, it was all belief in Jesus as the Messiah and the rightful royal heir to David's throne, as prophesied about in 2 Samuel 7. Then, as we talked about last week, Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding they were all at by turning water into wine. It was at that moment that the disciples he had called to follow him put their faith in him as also God. The disciples think they have a pretty good understanding and handle on Jesus at that point. Who he was, what he was going to be doing, what his character was going to be like. He's done all things that are pretty cool. And they've been all welcomed by everyone who has witnessed them. In fact, after the sweet wedding miracle Jesus had just performed like we talked about last week, Everyone, including Jesus' brothers, wanted to jump on this Jesus bandwagon. And in, in verse 12 of chapter 2 in John, uh, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 2. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 2 or look this up in your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 2, verse 12, we read this. After this, so after this miracle, his first miracle at this wedding, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, if you remember, Cana, Nazareth, and Capernaum. Cana, Nazareth, and Capernaum over here, they're all part of the same region here, known as Galilee, up there. Ruled by Herod Antipas, this whole region had the same political and tax system. It's, how, it's what Jesus grew up with and what Andrew and Simon Peter had gotten used to after they moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum. We read in verse 12 that at this point, Jesus' brothers were intrigued enough by their brother's seeming magic trick that they want to find out more about what happened. However, this wasn't out of a belief in him as the Messiah or God. They just wanted to be seen around him. This guy did something really cool. I want to be seen as connected to him. Jesus is, by the time we get to John chapter 7, they still don't believe in him. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. 
We see Jesus' brother's true colors here. They never took Jesus' claims about himself as he was the Messiah and God seriously. They only saw him as a famous person they wanted to be seen with and associated with. That's very easy for us to understand today because a lot of people are the, are the same exact way. Eventually, after Jesus' resurrection, at least one of Jesus' brothers, a man named James, did put his faith in Jesus as God and the Messiah. James became a leader of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the letter we still have today in the New Testament as the book of James. But all of a sudden, Jesus shatters everyone's preconceptions of him and what he was doing and what he was supposed to be doing in an event that at first I'm sure seems sudden and odd to Jesus' disciples. The Apostle John next transitions to this major and odd event in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this obviously isn't the first time Jesus has gone down from Galilee into Judea and gone into Jerusalem to observe Passover. Passover was one of the Jewish feasts that all Jewish males were required to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe. In fact, we read that as Jesus was growing up, his family went from Nazareth to Jerusalem Every year for Passover, we read, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So the fact that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover wasn't out of the ordinary by any means. He did this every year of his life, all growing up. However, this particular visit to Jerusalem for Passover was completely different. As one biblical scholar pointed out, this is the first of three references to three different Passovers in John's Gospel. In addition, the feast referenced in John 5.1 is most likely another Passover feast, marking as many as three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Marking these references in John's Gospel with the Passovers is one way that biblical scholarship has determined how long Jesus' ministry lasted and about how old he was when he was crucified, because it happened once a year every year. What takes place next, again, if you can sit more towards the front, I understand if for health reasons you can't, but if you can sit more towards the front, you're able to see this better in the future. What takes place next most likely happens, here's a diagram of the temple at the time, Herod the Great's temple. Uh, this is the court of the Gentiles, all the, the, this bigger area surrounding uh, the holiest part of the temple. Most likely what happens in our passage today happens in this outermost area of the temple courts known as the court of the Gentiles. This was as far as anyone who wasn't Jewish could go. Everyone had to pass through this court, including Gentiles there to sightsee and Jewish people passing through to the women's court and the court of Israel. And when Jesus arrives with his disciples in verse 14, we read this. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Now what's going on here? Because everyone who went into the temple had to pass through the court of Gentiles first, this was the perfect place for certain individuals to set up shop. 
And what I mean is this, because a ton of people from the immediate area would flood into Jerusalem every year for Passover, as well as the other two required feasts, Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, not everyone could lug an ox or a sheep or a dove with them to be sacrificed according to the Jewish law. So someone along the way came up with the idea, especially as things became more urbanized due to the Roman occupation, hey, why don't we provide the required sacrificial animals to people who arrive in town without any animals? And while we're at it, let's overcharge them for the convenience. Same exact way people think today. Nothing's changed in the past 2,000 years. <laughs> Thank you. In a way, think of buying tickets to a concert today. You can either pay less in advance or pay more for a ticket at the door when you get there. On top of that, the temple had one type of coinage that was acceptable for it to receive and use. The temple had one type of coinage that was acceptable for it to receive and use, and it was called the Tyrian currency. The Tyrian shekel has a very interesting history within Judaism and is referenced in the New Testament and directly connects to our passage this morning. Firstly, the tax has its roots in the Mosaic law with Exodus 30, 13 saying, each person, each person who is counted, every male who is 20 years old or older, each person who is counted must give a small piece of silver as a sacred offering to the Lord. This payment is half a shekel based on the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 geras. This half shekel weight of silver was given by every male when they turned 20 years old and every year after that as a tax to the tabernacle and then the first temple that Solomon built and now in the temple that Herod the Great built. After the time the Greeks conquered the area led by the previously mentioned Alexander the Great, those in charge of the temple started requiring the coinage produced in the city of Tyre, Tyrian shekel, named after the city, in Phoenicia. Why? The mint in Tyre prided itself on the fact that the shekel they produced was 94% pure silver. I don't think you can find anything like that anymore. This shekel Almost 100% pure silver minted in Tyre, again, was known as the Tyrian silver shekel and was worth the temple tax for two men. It's based on this part of the law. Half a shekel, so a whole shekel is enough tax for two men. For the longest time in human history, the worth of currency was based on its weight and purity of the precious metal that it contained. So, if you wanted to make sure that you were receiving the coin with the highest guaranteed worth, you would only accept that type of coin. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Here was the religious problem with this, though. Even though rabbinical authority 
from about 125 BC onward, decided to only accept the Tyrian shekel as payment for the temple tax in the Mosaic law, in order to ensure the highest worth of currency taken in, the coin itself, because it was produced in Phoenicia, had pagan images on it. Here's a picture of one of those Tyrian shekels produced in Phoenicia. On one side is an eagle, already common to ancient pagan people's coins. And if that wasn't enough, on the other, here, you see a face here. You know who that is? That is the pagan Phoenician god Heracles. Anyone see the problem here? With this being the only coin accepted at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem? with a pagan God on it. God was very explicit in the Ten Commandments that his people not have what? It's the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And now his own temple, the people that are running it and overseeing it, this is the only type of coin that's accepted at his holy temple. A pagan God stamped on it. The rabbinical authorities cared way more about getting a guaranteed pure coin of silver and the highest worth of currency for the temple rather than what was stamped on it. You see the, the problem here? Furthermore, when Herod the Great dedicated his great temple in 18 BC, the same temple that today's account takes place in, the Romans closed the mint entire but gave the rabbinical authorities in Jerusalem the right to continue minting this shekel, provided that they keep the same images on it to avoid the perception that they had a currency separate from the Roman uh, government. So rather than change the only accepted form of currency for God's temple, what the rabbis did is they openly perpetuated and promoted it by moving the mint of the Tyrian shekel right into the heart of Jerusalem, right next to the temple in Jerusalem. So by the time Jesus arrives at the temple, this currency with the image of a pagan god stamped on it was firmly and well established as the only accepted way of paying the temple tax for all Jewish males 20 years and older. Can you see why Jesus would already have a problem with the Tyrian shekel being the only accepted form of currency for the temple of his heavenly father? Even though this Tyrian shekel is one and the same as the same coin that Jesus told Peter to take out of the first fish he caught to pay the same temple tax with in Matthew 17, he wasn't okay with it being the only accepted form of currency in order to follow the Mosaic law and remain sinless according to it. One additional note on the Tyrian shekel itself. The biting irony of this temple currency with this pagan god imprint, imprinted on it is that it was most likely one and the very same, or should I say 30 of the same, as the 30 shekels of silver that the Jewish religious leaders gave to Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. The religious leaders took 30 of these coins, which were already an offense to the first of the Ten Commandments, 
out of the temple treasury meant for the work of God to pay a traitor to betray God in the flesh himself. What irony, huh? Now getting back to our passage, if the Tyrian shekel was the only accepted form of paying the temple tax and the only place that minted it was in Jerusalem only for the temple tax and the only other forms of currency were Greek and Roman forms, what would every male 20 years and older have to do in order to pay the annual temple tax? Take their Greek and Roman currencies and exchange them for Tyrian shekels, right, in order to pay the temple tax. Who were the only ones who possessed Tyrian shekels for you to exchange your Greek and Roman coins for? Money changers, which we just read about in verse 13, hired by the Jewish religious authorities to then charge you an exorbitant exchange fee. Do you see the obvious hustle that the Jewish religious authorities have going on here? You know what this is the very definition of today? Racketeering. That's what this is the very definition of today. Racketeering. Something that many people get arrested for and sent to prison over today. And yet this is what the Jewish religious authorities and the money changers they hired were openly doing in God's holy temple. The people who were the most victimized through this practice of both paying exorbitant prices for sacrificial animals and having to pay insane exchange rates just to follow the Mosaic Law's temple tax at that point in Jewish history, the poor. I went through all of that background to explain why Jesus gets so righteously angry in verse 15. We get it now. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. See, this wasn't Jesus going off the deep end. Through all the understanding of all the background of what was going on here, we can very easily understand why this is Jesus' response upon entering this time, uh, the temple this time. Since we know this had been going on for 120 years before Jesus' birth, and Jesus had no doubt witnessed it every time he went to the temple with his parents, every Passover, his entire childhood and adolescence, why did he wait until now? Did we ever think about that? Why does he wait till this point to do this? Because as we talked about last week, his hour had come. Jesus had already performed the first miracle, and we talked about this last week, which would not only prove him as God, but as Isaiah's prophesied suffering servant. And what that did is that started him down the road to the cross. Since this had already been established, Jesus' earthly ministry had officially begun, and he could officially act in the capacity of being God's representative, complete with God's authority on earth. So, what was going on here was God showing his anger towards this practice, the religious leaders of who were supposed to be his chosen people had been perpetuating and promoting in his face for over 150 years at this point. Sometimes people will point at this event and say, wasn't this Jesus sinning by letting his anger get the best of him? 
Let me turn it around and ask you this question. Would we ask the same question of God the Father when he killed the Israelites with plagues and fire for their blatant disobedience of his commandments? No, not at all. Those actions were judgment for Israel's blatant disobedience. Since Jesus was God and he was acting with the authority that only belongs to God, this was God symbolically responding with judgment for this blatant disobedience his people had been perpetuating for 150 years. There is a type of righteous anger that God, as holy and perfect, acts on, especially when it comes to people made in his image being exploited or abused. And remember, the people most victimized by this practice were the poor. Not only was this a symbol of God's uh, judgment, but it was also a fulfillment of prophecy. As noted by one biblical scholar, Zechariah 14.21, an obvious messianic passage describing the day of the Lord, or the end age ushered in by the Messiah, says, and on that day there will no longer be traitors or merchants in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. This quite literally is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus drove them all out, so they were no longer in the temple at that point. We'll see they creep back in eventually because Jesus has to do the same exact thing at the end of his ministry. But this is a messianic declaration. By Jesus physically driving out the merchants and traders from the temple, he's declaring that he should be directly connected to the future messianic time of peace, prosperity, and pure worship of God. By Jesus performing this action here, he's declaring that he is the one ushering in this messianic age. In addition, combine this with the prophetic fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Who is the messenger? The gospel writers are clear that it's John the Baptist. So then, who is the Lord who suddenly comes into the temple, which is really his? Jesus, the Messiah. And as we saw earlier in this message, this event truly was sudden. So sudden that it must have been a very odd thing in Jesus' disciples' minds for Jesus to do. They certainly didn't see that coming. Why, what, what did Malachi prophesy would be the point to God suddenly appearing in his temple? He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. The point? God would cleanse the temple, getting rid of what defiled it. In this case, it was the livestock merchants and money exchangers. The disciples were probably taken off guard at seeing all this happen. But John notes that at least he remembered Psalm 69.9, which he quotes in verse 17. His disciples remember, remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69.9 is about David representing the greater passion that the future Messiah would have for the sanctity and the purity of God's house. Passion for your house has consumed me. 
and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. All of these fulfillments of these three different messianic prophecies are wrapped up in this event in the temple. This is the first time that Jesus drives out these people from the temple, but it's unfortunately not the last, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. John records the first time this happens in direct connection with the beginning of Jesus' ministry and him acting with God's authority. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, record this happening a second time, immediately following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and rides that donkey all the way to the temple and then he gets off that donkey and once again does the same exact thing as he does here. Deja vu. Apparently, the temple leaders don't learn their lesson the first time. In essence, Jesus starts and ends his ministry with cleansing the temple from this defilement, exploitation, abuse, and sin. The religious leaders are obviously not okay with this experience, seeing, as one biblical scholar noted, Jesus probably shut down the temple worship for the rest of the day because all the animals were gone. They had all been driven out, were wandering the streets of Jerusalem. So temple worship was probably shut down for the rest of the day. And we'll take a look at their aggressive and defiant response as well as Jesus' response next week. For now, Jesus was filling uh, Jesus was filled with righteous anger at what was defiling his father's temple or house of worship. Let's take a step back in looking at this and application of this to our lives as followers of Jesus today. God's word refers to another temple, and this time the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in connection with sacrifice and worship of God, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So, our only and logical response is you must honor God with your body. Do we have as much passion and zeal, like we read, about cleansing the Holy Spirit's temples or us and our bodies as Jesus did for the Jewish temple? Do we live as though our bodies are not our own to do with as we please? As we see here quite clearly, it's not your body, your choice. That doesn't exist. It's God's body, God's choice. Jesus paid an impossibly high price, his own blood, to redeem us. Therefore, our bodies are not our own. We do not make the decisions about our own bodies. God does. God has his standards. Once we repent and ask Jesus to be our Savior and King, that's a turning point in our lives. Our bodies are now God's. So what must we now do with, the, with those bodies? We must honor God. 
This means we can't continue to knowingly put things into our bodies or do things with our bodies or say things that we know aren't pleasing to God in obedience to his standards. Anything less than that is disobedience. On the flip side, honoring God means using our bodies to please him, following his plan, building his kingdom. Paul writes elsewhere, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God, sacrifice, because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. You want to know how to worship God? This is it right here. You can't just praise him with songs and read his word. There's got to be a daily sacrifice of who you are and your body. That, as Paul says very clearly here, is truly the way to worship him. So while we must surrender every area of our lives up to the Holy Spirit's transformation, thereby cleansing them from sin, we must also be offering the sacrifice of our lives and bodies and our dreams and our futures to his service on a daily basis. It's a dual focus. Cleansing the temple from sin and offering the sacrifice of our everyday lives in service to him. Two things going in the same direction. So what are you also doing for the kingdom? Are you serving God and his kingdom in any way? Or is your life as Jesus' disciples an apathetic one? Remember, Your life is not your own. It's to be lived in service to God. As we cleanse these individual temples of sin and offer the everyday sacrifice of our lives in service to God, we as a church will grow. The Apostle Peter writes, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you, he's talking to the people who make up the church, believers in Jesus. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. God is doing a great work in building up his spiritual temple in this local church. But we all have to see if we're helping that building effort or vandalizing it, damaging it with the way we're living our individual lives. How we live our individual lives directly affects each other and our church. Both Peter here and Paul elsewhere through the New Testament are adamant about that. May we all have the, meet the same request of God that David did. That as God builds his church in this community, we also make the same request of God. Point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for you righting this wrong, for cleansing your Father's holy temple, for driving out what defiled it. And Lord, we see why. We see why you were so righteously angry at this practice. Not only was it openly allowing pagan images in complete defiance of the first commandment into your house, 
but it was victimizing the poorest of that culture. Lord, I pray that we would have the same passion and same zeal you had for cleansing the temple in cleansing and and honoring you with these temples of the Holy Spirit. May you give us the strength to do the hard things. To let go of what we know is not pleasing to you. To surrender that up to the Holy Spirit's transformative power. And may we honor you. May we, on the positive side, see what we can do to build your kingdom and to honor you with our lives in this life. As your word says, we are not our own, our bodies are not our own, our lives are not our own, but they're yours, to do with as you please according to your will and to build your kingdom with. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.